Today's episode is from the first year of the Coaching Coordinator Podcast, where in season we talked with Terry Shea, retired NFL and FBS coach, about different aspects of the game. And this particular episode, we focus on the fourth quarter and especially paying attention to teams who are making it into the playoffs and very competitive situations. We also finish up with some things for the coaches who are now into their offseason and looking back at the previous season protections and blitzes and analyzing those in order to improve going forward. So enjoy this one with Coach Terry Shea. And if you're still playing, good luck this week. I am joined by our guest host, Coach Terry Shea. Coach, it's been a great season. I've had a lot of fun talking with you. I've certainly learned a lot through these podcasts, and I'm sure guests have as well. So it's great to be deep in the in the postseason right now, and I think we got some great things to talk about today for our listeners. Well, this is certainly a championship month for the high school, and I hope the coaches are really appreciative of our discussion and I'd love to think that maybe we had an impact on just a couple of different ideas from from the high school coaching ranks. So my pleasure to be with you, Keith. Well, Coach, I think as we talked about some things we could share here, we've gotten into a lot of different things in all aspects of the game. And one we haven't focused on yet, which I think really becomes important here, especially as we get late into the postseason, is the fourth quarter. And the fourth quarter is an animal of its own, as you know. It's uh, First of all, I think that the tradition around the country, we always see those teams, when it hits the fourth quarter, you see those four fingers in the air. A lot of teams doing that at the college and high school level with the idea that the game is won in the fourth quarter. So I'm excited to delve into some of these topics with you today. Well, great. You know, I've often thought that the fourth quarter obviously determines the outcome of the game, but... Sometimes that opening drive of the third quarter can influence the swing of a game as well emotionally and with momentum. But one thought that I'll start with, Keith, on the fourth quarter part of it is when you change field positions, when one team now goes in a different direction because of the change of the quarter, every coach wants to make sure he understands the weather conditions. And if the wind is a factor and you happen to have a field goal kicker that you have a lot of confidence in, then that can really influence your play calling if the game is close and you have the wind to your back and you've got the ace in the hole and that's your field goal kicker. So that's so important and that can be influenced at times by the decision at halftime as to which end zone you're going to defend in the third quarter, which leaves you with the fourth quarter win. So you start with the kicking game and that's a good place to start when you think about the fourth quarter. Absolutely. And obviously the punter is important in these situations too. Field position becomes critical, especially if the game is tight and you have to play it in that manner. So maybe let's focus a little bit on those types of games first, Coach. The tight game, whether it's tied or you're up maybe by a score or a field goal or maybe down by one score or field goal. What considerations do you think – you look for in play calling on either side of the ball. You've had the whole game, I guess to preface this, you've had the whole game to to really figure out what works, make adjustments. Now what do you focus on in the fourth quarter? Well, if it's a one-possession game, which a lot of playoff games are inclined to be, you want to make sure that if you're going to call the plays for your quarterback in terms of the passing game, 
I've always felt like going into every game, I used to ask the quarterback to list maybe three or four passes that he had the most confidence in going into the game. And so if you have that information in your head or you've got it marked down on your play sheet, then you want to make sure you call the passing game accordingly. Give your quarterback the plays that he feels most confident about, and sometimes that can lend itself to success under a lot of pressure situations that come up in the fourth quarter. So that's the way I would approach the passing game. And, of course, if I were defending the passing game, I would not necessarily want to take my eyes off the quarterback. Be careful of those cover two man under coverages where everybody mans up or or some kind of man coverage where you run people off and now you've got the possibility of other kinds of options off the passing game that can hurt you. So be careful of how you defend the pass, but when you do call the passing game on offense, go with the plays that your quarterback really demonstrates his confidence in. And obviously when you're facing a passing team, that two-man, I think a a lot of teams do like to call that. I know the one thing our defensive coordinator always liked to do with that, that two-man coverage was use what he called a rat or a spy on the quarterback. So be sure, yeah, especially with today's quarterbacks, they're so mobile, they're dangerous when they get out of the pocket, that you have to have somebody who can match his athletic ability, you know, and maybe it's not the mic. You have to have that guy who mirrors him and, and chase him down out of the pocket. you got to consider maybe substitutions, et cetera, against those passing teams. But obviously the main thing on defense is you want to be sound. might not be the time to take chances always on defense either. If you had something that's been working the whole game, sometimes it's sticking to the game plan and utilizing what's worked on defense as well. Oh, tremendously accurate on your ideas, Keith. The rat idea or the robber idea when you go to that two-man coverage or any kind of man under coverage, boy, I've always told the quarterback, if you see that kind of coverage against you, don't hesitate to make it into an automatic quarterback draw. And, of course, the robber or the rat or the spy defender can take care of that on the defensive side. But from an offensive side, quarterbacks have license to run with the football when they see that two-man. Coach, let's flip the script now, and let's talk about being on offense, first of all, when you're up. When you're up by more than one score, and maybe a a change in, in how you focus in the fourth quarter. And I think I've always believed I really like the up-tempo. I've used a lot of up-tempo in what I've done, especially in the past uh, decade. But I've believed you have to have the ability to slow things down and manage the game, especially when you're up. You don't want to tempo yourself out of a lead and have a quick three and out and allow the other team more opportunities on the field. So now you have to think about things you can do to slow things down. The challenge, if you've been a no-huddle, up-tempo team, is how do you do that? For me, I kind of evolved in my thoughts on that. I remember we were playing Otterbein, and we had a situation where we're, you know, we just need to run the clock out of first down, ends the game because we could take a knee and we're on a critical situation on a third down we're out there standing there looking at the sideline we false cadence we look back over to the sideline we're holding for the clock they change their defense in the middle of it fortunately we didn't have a mechanism in place for our quarterback to look back again but he saw the change and actually threw a fade down the sideline gave the head coach a heart attack and asked me what we were doing but we caught it and then we took a knee to end the game 
I think for me, the thing I got to is I didn't like to go out there and show my formation for that long to a defense. So what we would do is huddle, and we found that actually our players still like getting the signals, and it's odd for them to hear a play when they're used to just seeing signals. So we, we would just let them look over to the sideline, get the signals in the huddle, hold for the clock, and then go ahead and spring out of the huddle with about 12 seconds left and snap the ball with about three or four seconds left. So I think you have to consider that managing the clock is an important part of the game, even if you're a hurry-up, no-huddle team. Oh, yes. And anytime you can huddle when you're on the offensive side of the ball, it lends itself to deceptiveness and you don't expose, as you indicated, your formations any longer than you need to. I reflect back, Keith, to my experience with Bill Walsh for those three years at Stanford, and he made one comment to me that I'll always remember, and he said that more games are lost with the two-minute drill than are won with the four-minute drill. (laughs) And the four-minute drill basically is when you're ahead by a score by one possession and you've got to run the clock out and you don't want your defense to come back on the field and have to win the game for you. So what Coach Walsh was referring to with that kind of a quote was that a lot of teams will give their practice time to the two-minute drill, but they tend not to practice the four-minute drill. And when you have something that is as important as this and it's not practiced, boy, you'd be surprised how many mistakes can occur when you're trying to run the clock out. If the coaches want to take heed, you want to make sure that you give some practice time to, okay, boys, we're in the four-minute drill. Here's what we're going to call. Here's what the running back or the back, the ball carrier has to understand. And quarterback, don't throw incompletions. If we do throw a, a pass, you take a sack. If anything, mm-hmm. you keep the clock running. And those are reactions in a game that are not normal for a quarterback to not want to take a sack or take a sack and not want to throw the ball away. That's something that goes across against his grain as a quarterback. And as a ball carrier, when you get to the sideline, you're so used to being comfortable running the ball out of bounds, you've got to stay in bounds. So that four-minute drill needs to be addressed if you're really a detailed coach. Yeah, that was something always on Thursdays for us at the college level. We would have essentially scripted drives, and one of the things we would always script is a four-minute situation now because we didn't want obviously to be inefficient in the way we use time in practice we weren't going to sit out there and watch a clock wind down but we would have somebody serve as essentially the the clock and and he would say when we want him to snap it like he would give the quarterback cues he'd say like eight seconds eight seconds we break out of the huddle five four he'd count it down simulating and obviously the quarterback has to look at the clock at the college level the play clock and do it on his own but we wanted to simulate those situations and we wanted those guys to be smart with the football obviously ball security at a premium we always looked at again you know I like to use fullbacks and tight ends I always like to add those extra gaps and widen the edge so you couldn't get that blitzer skinning off the edge who gets a tackle in the backfield or maybe gets a chance to swipe at the ball, et cetera. And obviously, you want safe passes. You want passes to targets that are going to be maybe shorter underneath the coverage, et cetera. You want to be careful of some of those things that maybe go down the field and allow a safety to get involved. So you want some of your safest passes. Obviously, play action is a great thing to utilize 
in a four-minute offense when the other team knows, hey, they really want to run the football. Yes, very much so. And uh, a lot of times if you do call a pass, it's usually on a third-down situation when you're in that in that four-minute offense. And that lends itself to even if you take a sack, you're still going to punt the ball and you keep the clock running. But the other aspect that you hit on earlier, Keith, was to stay in the huddle and then disperse from the huddle and get to your formation. And as you alluded to, a lot of formations become tighter and you start to cover up the edges. But that gives the defense less time to recognize the formation. And more than likely, the defense has some kind of a pressure call, some kind of a blitz call. And so it gives them a little bit less time to figure out, okay, which side am I supposed to come off of? Which B-gap am I supposed to hit? I'm supposed to be covering somebody, but I don't see anybody out on the on the wide the wide formation look. So I love the idea of staying in the huddle until the last moment, even though you're a no-huddle spread team throughout the three-and-a-half quarters of the game. Absolutely, and I think when you can do that, when you can wrap your mind around maybe being multiple in your personnel groups, in your formations, and, and that becomes something that you do, I really do believe your, your four-minute offense is a great opportunity to use some formations that the defense hasn't seen and adjusted to over the course of the game. And it's an opportunity maybe if, hey, they want to press their situation, you might force them into situations where they got to check out of that and into something a little bit more uh, vanilla, which obviously gives you the advantage. Yes. Here's one other idea for the coaches. When you're looking at your play options – be careful of giving the ball to a running back or a player who has not handled the ball during the course of the game or not handled the ball as much. I would lean toward giving the ball to the player who has carried the ball throughout the game or who might be your best player, and you want to make sure he gets to touch the football. So let the players sometimes dictate the play call, not necessarily the play itself. Going back to the idea of the fourth quarter, maybe the beginning of the fourth quarter, before we get into this four-minute offense, I know some coaches, and even at the NFL level, I know coaches who have done this, where they basically take the mentality that we're going to shut down the passing game. I know that might be a little bit different than today's modern football, throw it all over the place mentality, but they get more into a mode where they're going to use their best runs and chew that clock up and, and shorten the game. What are your thoughts on that, and I guess how does that apply with thinking about some of those teams who like to sling the ball all over? You mean reversing your play calling and going to the running game? If that's your question, I would have to make sure that I address a change of personality in your offense during the practice week and and during the weeks prior to the season and make sure your guys understand how important it is to keep the clock moving when you're on offense and you're trying to run the game out. Now, when you are getting to the point where you haven't quite gotten into that four-minute mode, and if you're a passing team, I wouldn't hold back. I would continue to do what you do best. And that's what coaches have got to remember when they're in a playoff situation is I think your question might have been, what do we do before we get to that last four mm-hmm. minutes of the game and do, exactly. we, do we back off no boy I stay with your personality and I'd 
play the game according to obviously what brought you to the playoff situation in the first place. Well, Coach, looking at things on the flip side of it, we've talked about the two-minute drill and gone into detail about those things. I think a couple tips, obviously, in this area, especially at the high school level or even at the college level, you know, it's important if you're on offense to emphasize. And, again, I think this has to be practiced. I think in practice you have a guy to be the official and spot the ball. But you want your players, as you're moving fast and trying to conserve time, to make sure – when you get up, that ball doesn't lie on the ground, that ball doesn't get flipped somewhere else, that you have to go over and give the ball right to the official so he could get it spotted and you can move quickly into the next play. I think it's, it's critical that it happens, especially at the high school level where I see those guys take some time, maybe a little bit more time to put the ball in play. I think it's critical that you do that, uh, especially when you're down. Great point. And uh, a lot of times that is not followed up with because players aren't used to doing that and you need to practice that transition in a game as well if I could leave one thought with the coaches about winning the game with a two-minute drill and the clock is your enemy not the opponent the uh, idea that you have to almost instill in your quarterback is that incompletions young man are okay because by the time the ball is snapped and the time it takes a quarterback to deliver the football, you probably are looking at a total of six seconds. But if you throw a, a pass to a check down receiver and he gets tackled for two yard gain, now you're looking at a runoff of clock of close to 20 to 25 seconds. So you could throw three incompletions in a row and still have more time left on the clock than throwing a little check down or having a quarterback try to run out of the pocket and get tackled for a two yard gain. So that's why you see it happen all the time, Keith, on uh, even at the NFL level, these quarterbacks will throw those little check down routes and, and the back gets tackled for a four yard gain or two yard gain. Boy, you're better off throwing an incompletion, huddling up, getting a good play call from your coach and then go with it. That's one of the things that I would leave with the coaches and uh, they've got to instill that in their quarterbacks. Coach, uh, the last situation I want to bring up here as we finish up this talk about the fourth quarter is a situation where maybe you're facing an opponent who's pretty much moving the ball at will, and the clock's running down. They're maybe in, in four-down territory, and I know this has happened before. I've, I've seen it. I've had the idea in my career. I remember at the high school level, I've, I've asked my defensive coordinator at times, do we give up a score right here on purpose? And sometimes you make a call that you know is going to be a bad call and take a shot, or you instruct your players, like, let them into the end zone because I believe in our offense and getting down the field. And what they're trying to do right now is just to take the clock off the board rather than score. And when you let them in the end zone, you have that extra opportunity. I know it is a very risky gamble. Coaches aren't very easy, feel very easy about doing that. But what are your thoughts on that? Well, you, <laughs> you're playing the analytics game, and I've seen it happen. I've watched it unfold, and to be quite honest with you, Keith, I don't know if I've ever seen a team actually pull that off and turn around and win a game. There must have been some team in, in the history of the game that has pulled that off and been able to win the game by letting your opponent score. But I just think you have to 
be true to yourself. And if your players understand what you're attempting to do, and that they'll they'll obviously buy into it and and try to make the best of it. If you pull it off and your players don't expect it, don't expect a real positive outcome in the game itself because I'm not sure your offensive team now that goes out to try to generate the points will be as strong as they need to be. So I think it's a 50-50 call, Keith. <laughs> it's definitely a gamble, and I got a funny story to finish up that idea. I mentioned that I had done that once in my career. Actually, it was my first year as a head coach, so it had to be like 2001. And we were at home. We had a back-and-forth fourth quarter. Both teams just kind of scoring at will. And it was exactly that. These guys were marching towards the end zone. We're trying to keep them out. The clock's rolling down. I think we were on like a third down. I asked my defensive coordinator, hey, what do we think about giving up a score? And he said, no, don't do it. Uh, something's going to happen. Well, the very next play, they break off a long run in there on the two-yard line. And <laughs> and they're running down the clock again. And I, I looked at them. You know, as as the the players spot the ball, I'm like, oh man! But then I see a flag come out, and sure enough, there's a personal foul penalty on them. And march it back um, to the 17. We end up going three more plays, sack them, and keep them out of the end zone, and we win. And right after the game, our chain gang comes running right at me. You won't believe this. I'm like, yeah, what happened on that personal foul? I said, there's this lady on the sideline. And she's cheering for the other team. And she, the officials tell her, you need to get back in the player's box. And she tells them, basically, in not so many words, I don't have to do that. I'm the coach's wife. So it was the coach's, head coach's wife. And it was actually his last game he was coaching. He was retiring. Got him a personal foul. Moved them back to the 17. And we ended up winning the game because of it. So I don't think that's in what my D.C. envisioned, that something was going to happen. But something happened, and, and we ended up winning the game. So in that case, I was fortunate to not have let him into the end zone. <laughs> no, that's a great story. See, there's that one exception to the history of the game. <laughs> <laughs> always something, right? This is a game where you know there's, there's always going to be something you thought you'd never see, and that was one of those instances. So, Oh, boy. <laughs> I wonder if that coach is still together with his wife uh he's he's still married to her i'm sure it was uneasy in their house for a while though <laughs> well coach uh, to tie things up and, and look at things for our teams who are out there our coaches are out there and working towards uh, taking a look back at at this past season and analyzing some things have done i wanted to focus today on protections and blitzes and analyzing those and share a process here that was pretty productive for me as far as getting into a lot of behind why we were either successful or why we weren't. And a lot of what I did really revolved around the idea of my passing games are kind of built on a lot of Homer Smith principles, and one of those being that passes need to be calibrated and the ball should be out at certain times. So what we would do is put our protections on the clock. And for us, we wanted the ball out on a drop back, a five-step, basically between 1.8 and 2.8 seconds. And we know that within that time frame, if we're not getting it out, there's, there's some kind of, a, of an issue that's happening. So the things we would look at, we would go snap to the worst-case scenario, snap to sack, and see how long we had to get rid of the ball. We would go snap to hurry, 
we would go snap to hit. So maybe the quarterback got hit but got the ball off, and we would go snap to throw. Obviously, in the snap and throw situations, we did get the ball off, but maybe maybe not where we needed to as far as getting it to the open receiver. But what these times did for us was allow us to really get into, like I said, the why behind it. Why were we getting hit so quick? Why were we being hurried? Why was there a sack? And a lot of that would have, we'd be able to at least point to the reason by the amount of time that it took. So if it was, if we had the ball for, let's say, three seconds, the quarterback should have had it out. So was it something in our routes down the field? Was it a coverage, actually, that was causing the sack? Was it the, something the defense did rather than an error in the protection? So a lot of this gets us to assignment errors. It gets us to technique errors. And it allows us to see what's been most effective for us in our protection game and maybe where are some weaknesses in our protection. That's a very advanced approach, and I think it's a very thorough approach that you just described. You mentioned the three-second figure. Coaches have to really be on guard. There's so much of this seven-on-seven business being thrown around in football, and we do it in our, every day in practice. But don't let your quarterback sit back there any more than three to four seconds and still have the ball in his hand. Have somebody on a counter, have somebody with a clock, some kind of a system where your quarterback understands that this is game-like and your reference to three seconds, boy, that's what's got to show up on these seven-on-seven drills when you're practicing your passing game. And there'd be one other approach when you're analyzing your protections And that would be, I would encourage the coaches to separate their protections into different categories, the five-man protection and the six-man protection and the seven-man protection and play action. So that'd be another very sound approach. And then take a look at the mixed downs protection versus third down protection. So you can really divide up your study in a very methodical way and make sure you understand that maybe we don't go with this protection next year because it failed the litmus test. That's another approach as well, Keith. Absolutely, Coach. And and I think when we flip that over, the approach obviously holds a lot of merit for the defensive side too. Uh, When you're looking at your stunts and your blitzes that are designed to get to a passer. So if you go through and you look at all those opportunities, you put those into, obviously the technology can help us. You put it into a cut-up list. What's great is a lot of this can go right into your huddle. You can create a column for these times that you're recording on a stopwatch and figure out where were these blitzes in getting to the quarterback. Did it produce a hurry? How long did it take us to get there? Did it produce a sack? How long did it take us to get there? Are we not getting there? Is this ineffective? Are they holding us out too long? And I think, again, a lot of it will go back to the assignment and the technique as you continue to break it down. And I think what Coach Chase just said about looking at the different types of protection, too, have a lot of merit for the defensive side as well. I really like your one thought about you mentioned the technique of a blitzer or a blitz scheme has to not only bring pressure and timing, but there's got to be technique. And so often coaches do not allow players to practice their blitz technique. So that's where you look at some of the teams that really can get to the quarterback with their linebackers and their safeties coming through on blitz. Or you want to, you want to make sure you practice that technique and create game-like 
situations where a defensive player gets to practice his technique of blitzing a passer, avoiding a protector, and then actually tackling the quarterback. So that takes a lot of good detailed practice time, and but it's worth it. Coach, I will share the link. I wrote an article, actually, it's probably a couple seasons ago at the end of the season about this exact idea about improving your pass protection for the next year by conducting a thorough postseason analysis. So some of these ideas are detailed in there. And like I said, I think you can flip that around and utilize that article to think about things you'd want to analyze for your defensive schemes as well. Coach, next week, we're going to be into week 14 of the season. We'll continue our conversation, and we're leading up to our week 15, our final episode in the game plan, which is going to be on the big game. So one more week, and then we'll be talking about the big game. We look forward to sharing more of these ideas with our listeners. Coach, it's been great to have you here as well. And I want you to mention before you go, Coach, your book and where our listeners would be able to find your book, which is, I think, one of the the best, if not the best, book ever written on quarterback position. Well, thank you, Keith. You mentioned week 14 and 15. It sounds like we're rivaling the NFL (laughs) in terms of a season. But the book that I'm most proud of, the entitlement is Eyes Up. And it can be found with Amazon.com, which is obviously on the Internet. You go strictly to Amazon.com, quarterback development books or just quarterback books, and the book will pop up. It has a a nice five-star rating. So it's a 410-page book, and it's got a leather encasement. So if the coaches only read half of it, they can always put it on their desk and and it looks like a nice presentation. So that's where they can find the book, Keith. Well, it's like an encyclopedia volume on the quarterback position. So it's a great resource, a great reference. Coach, I've enjoyed this week with you as usual, and I look forward to talking with you next week. And good luck to everybody out there as you continue through your playoff run. I know some of you are catching up from the season and probably didn't have all the time to listen every day. So we appreciate you coming back and we have a lot for you here in the next offseason. First, I want to say we're going to have some special things for our five-year anniversary, which is coming up in about a month. And one of those things is going to be a contest where we have a trip for you. And we'll talk about that next week and exactly what that is. So we're excited about some of the things we're going to be able to do for you and certainly excited about our lineup moving forward. If you're enjoying the podcast, please head over to iTunes and hit five-star for rate. If you have a minute, write a review. It really helps the podcast, and I appreciate it. And follow me on Twitter, at Coach K. Grabowski.